Welcome to the New Providence Presbyterian Church podcast, where we will share our messages from our weekend worship services. We hope these messages will inspire you and challenge you in your walk with Jesus. You know, through the pages of Scripture, um, from start to finish, it's, it's, uh, I believe there's an indirect message from God, and his indirect message is, you have my word. You have my word. Uh, it's, it's words that when you think about any relationship, any time where someone commits something to you, when they say those words, it means something, right? It's that they say, you, you have my word. You're, you're banking on the fact that they're going to come through. You're banking on the fact that their promise is said and will be kept. I know in my life there's examples where sometimes that's been the case. Sometimes it hasn't. But whenever it happens, it strengthens that relationship. It makes it closer. So over and over, I believe God has made it clear that his promises are there for us, and, and he says, you have my word. You have my word. And that's the focus as we continue in our sermon series, This is Essential. Today's focus is God's word is essential. God's word is essential. And, and, the, and the truth of today is, and if you remember anything from the sermon, the key takeaway from the sermon is that God has given us his word, and God's word uniquely gives us life. Right, let's say that with me. God has given us his word, and his word uniquely gives us life. Let me grab this here. And so as we think about that today, um, you think about what's essential, and that's what we've been focusing on. Uh, what's essential? And one definition of essential is something that's absolutely necessary or indispensable. And so last week we began this series considering what are the essential beliefs of the Christian faith? Like what's the core? What's getting back to the basics? What truly matters at the core? And last week I shared about how a saying that, that really came into focus in the 17th century during some tumultuous times in the church where a Lutheran-German theologian said, in, all, in, in the essentials there needs to be unity, in the non-essentials liberty, and over all things charity or love. And for centuries this saying at different points has kept the church family together. We're recognizing there's always going to be differences on disputable matters, things that aren't necessarily clear in Scripture, things that are definitely outside of Scripture, but within the essentials, there needs to be unity. And that's where there could be unity, ultimately unity found in Christ, in Jesus himself, who is the key essential. And so as we are entering into this sermon series, intentionally, as we come to another election cycle, and then we'll come through in the next couple of years, where the, the, no doubt we're going to be pulled in all kinds of directions. That for us to stay unified, to stay focused, we need to focus on the essentials. And in the essentials, find unity. In the non-essentials, there's liberty. They could, we could agree to disagree. But over all things, there needs to be charity and love. And so today's focus is God's word is essential. As we think about God's word, ultimately as we think about the pages of Scripture, Old Testament, talking about God's word that was ultimately pointing towards the word who became flesh, Jesus himself, and lived among us. So the word of God ultimately is the living word, Jesus Christ. And then we have the written word, the pages of Scripture, the Bible, which bear witness to who Jesus is. Right? The Old Testament focusing and anticipating Jesus, the Gospels, which talk about his life and ministry, and then the rest of the New Testament, which explains and describes the meaning and significance of his life, death, and resurrection. And so his word is essential, starting with Jesus, and then the Bible, which bears witness to who he is. And so before we dive into the specifics about the Bible, I ask you a question. What was your first experience that you can remember with the Bible? Or what's an early experience with the Bible? Coming into contact with the Bible. Maybe it was through family or through a church or 
some circumstance. What was an early experience with the Bible? I know for me, growing up, my first experience with the Bible was in this church, right? Starting in the preschool and then coming through Sunday school classes where every single week stories were read, the stories of Jesus, his miracles, the teachings of Jesus, that he is the vine and we are the branch, and apart from him, we could do nothing, and learning those basics every single week. Now, in my house, there was no option. Church was not an option. Like, my mom, we were going to church. Like, no baseball, no lacrosse, no gymnastics. I wasn't in gymnastics, but none of that, none of that, none of that. It was, we're going to church. And I can't remember if I shared the story, but I, early on, I remember coming back from my aunt and uncle's house. We were in Brooklyn, and we came back late at night, probably 1 a.m. from a family gathering on a Saturday night. Woke up Sunday morning, and I'm like, something's different. Why, why don't we go to church? Uh, the sun was higher. I'd slept in later, and I asked my mom. I'm like, why don't we go to church? She's like, Jeff, I came into your room, and your bed, like the covers were, weren't moved at all. You had slept so deeply. I didn't want to wake you up. I just wanted to let you sleep. I'm like, oh, that's, thank you, Mom. Hmm. So next week, I'm like, here's what I, I set my alarm half an hour early from, from when she would wake me up, got up, made my bed, slipped into the covers like a mummy, <laughs> hoping that, that she would come in and be like, just let Jeff sleep. She would open up the door, time to go to church. I'm like, okay. Next week, time to go to church. Okay. Next week, time to go to church. I said, Mom, but didn't you see how well I slept? I mean, my covers didn't even move. I mean, remember that time last month when you said we didn't have to go to church? She goes, and this is when I learned that parents really know everything. Because my mom's like, Jeff, our walls are this thin. I heard your alarm go off. I heard you make your bed. You, I know you slipped back into bed. Nice try. We're going to church, right? So that was my early experience of I just didn't really want to go to church. I didn't really want to go um, and study the Bible. But I remember still every week we went. And over time, through the love of those Sunday school teachers, through the love of the youth club leaders at this church. I still remember getting my first Bible and it was memorize all 66 books of the Bible and you win a prize, right? And, and then into middle school and then eventually high school, God's word came to life, but it, came, it took a while. Um, but that was my ex first experience with the Bible as it became, went from just stories about God to something powerful that helped me relate to God. So I don't know what your story is and what your first initial experience with the Bible is, but as we think about the Bible, some more important questions to consider are, why is the Bible important? And what role does the Bible play in our lives today? And with that, why is the Bible essential? And so to consider the Bible, and look, we're going to take a look into the window of someone's life. And this person is Timothy in the New Testament. Or if you've been around the church, you know Timothy, who is, uh, was a protege, right, mentored by the great Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul started church communities all around the Mediterranean region. And here, Timothy, a, young, a younger man who was, lived in the ancient city of Lystra. And we read in Scripture that Timothy's mom was, had, it was of a Jewish background. His dad was of a Greek background. And so most likely Timothy from age five at that time, anytime you were age five, you started learning about the Old Testament law, that, that that was Timothy. And so the Apostle Paul, through his journeys and missionary journeys around the Mediterranean, eventually God intersected Timothy's life with Paul's life. And then Timothy traveled with, with Paul and learned from Paul. And years later, Paul wrote multiple letters of encouragement and instruction to Timothy, both to mentor him and raise him up, but also to be a gift to the church. And in that second letter, 2 Timothy, in the middle of that letter is a description of God's word. 
And we're going to take some time to put a magnifying glass to those verses today to talk about the meaning and significance of God's Word, specifically the Bible, its origin, its purpose, and what that means for us today. Because God's Word is essential. And God's given us His Word. And His life uniquely comes to us in and through His Word. And so with that, we're going to look at 2 Timothy verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And before we dive in, the verses leading up, the Apostle Paul is, is letting Timothy know, he's like, look, this world is going in one direction. It's heading in this direction. And in, in Paul's description, he said, Timothy, this world is going from bad to worse. And so in light of that, he's telling Timothy, you need an interruption. And I want to interrupt that right here, right now. And starting in verse 14, I'll read the whole passage and we'll go verse by verse after. We read this. Paul says to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Or you go back to verse 14. He, Paul says, as for you, meaning Timothy, hey, everyone may be going in this direction, but as for you, don't, don't follow them. Don't go from bad to worse. Interrupt that. He says, as for you, Timothy, continue. Continue in what you've learned and become convinced of. The assumption is, Timothy, you've, you've learned about the truths of Jesus Christ. You've learned, you've learned these. Now continue in those and what you've learned, but also you've become convinced of over time. So Timothy, he's, he's worked these, these truths over in his life. He's become convinced of them. He's become rooted in them. It's become really a part of who he is. He says, continue in what you've learned to become convinced of. I'm encouraged by this description, strangely encouraged, because it shows that no, there's nothing new under the sun. That even back in the first century, there were people who were ditching their faith. Even in the first century, there were those who were deconstructing their faith, deconstructing and reconstructing and, and having doubts and questions and, and leaving God, but then finding their way back. Nothing new under the sun. Here, even then, the Apostle Paul is encouraging Timothy, don't go that way. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of. What reason does he give? He says, because you know who you learned it from. Because you know from those from who you've learned it. Right. If you go back a couple chapters at the beginning of this letter, we see that Timothy learned primarily from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And again, as a young Jewish boy, his mom being, his mom being Jewish, he would have started to learn the Old Testament law from five years old. And so he would have learned the Old Testament scriptures. And so not just the Old Testament scriptures, and not just the law, and not just from his grandmother and his mother, but then he would learn from the Apostle Paul as well as he traveled with him, as Paul taught him the truths of, of Jesus Christ. So Timothy's a great example of two things coming together, family and spiritual leaders of the church. And when they come together, that's when great things happen. That's, when, that's how you maximize spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Timothy, with his grandmother and his mother, pouring into him the scriptures. And then the Apostle Paul teaching together, both family and church together. We see that having a deep impact on Timothy. So Paul says, remember from whom you've learned these things. Then he goes on. He says, he says, because these scriptures have been able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Right? The word make means powerfully able to do so. So this is not something which is natural. This is supernatural. That scriptures are able to make you wise 
for salvation. Saved from what? No doubt saved from sin, saved from evil, saved from a life of rebellion against God. And not just saved from something, but saved for something. Saved to be a blessing, right? Blessed to be a blessing. Saved to be a light in the world. Here, the scriptures, he says, are powerful. They're powerfully able to make you wise for salvation. How? As you trust and believe and have faith in Christ Jesus. What about these scriptures? Now we get to verse 16. A great verse to memorize, no doubt, uh, from the Bible. He says, all scripture, not some, not part. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. Here he says, it's, it's the breath of God. And, and, and author and late author and pastor John Stott in his commentary says it well. He says, some translations say inspiration, and that's, that's a, a good translation. He's like, a better translation may be aspiration, that God breathed out scripture. Because God's breath, as it's breathed out, God's breath is always creative, or recreative. When God's breath goes out, dead things come back to life. When God's breath goes out, what's withered becomes restored. And so here we see this, that all scripture is God-breathed. It has the mark, the breath of God. It's unique. So how did this come about? As you think about the origin of scripture, is it that God just dictated this, like to the different authors of the New Testament, like that Paul was sitting down, or James, or John, and they sat in a room? and listen for God's voice, and then either they would write it or, or their scribe would write it down? No, that's not how it happened. The wonder and beauty of Scripture is that God used real people like you and me to put together his word. And he shared his word. He breathed out his word. And in real circumstances, with real people facing real challenges, reflecting on the very real outcome of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection came about these New Testament letters. Like unlike other religions where you might have someone in a cave, someone hearing a voice and writing it down, or maybe uh, the scriptures coming down from heaven. Here, actually, real people dealing with real situations and real challenges, reflecting on the real life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God breathed his scripture. Theologians say that God superintended the writing of scripture. And it's a beautiful picture of using real people to write real letters that speak to the real truths about Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, in the same way his word is fully from God, but it also has a fully human stamp on it in a way which makes sense and is relatable to us. All scripture is God-breathed. It's creative. It's got his mark on it. Just like every human person has a, has a unique breath, the unique breath of God is in and through his word. So we see that origin of scripture in this passage. As we think about that origin, it comes also to think about how there's both diversity and there's unity in the Bible. It's incredible to me, as you think about the Bible, that you have 66 books written over the course of 1,500 years by numerous authors from different backgrounds, different experiences, and different places, different genres. There's great diversity in the Bible. It's not just one book that's written, here are the truths of God, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. There's poetry, there's story, there's the Gospels, there's, there's history and acts, there's, there's visions and revelation, there's all these different genres, there's great diversity, but then there's unity, and the unity comes in one story, the one story ultimately of Jesus Christ, the promised one who came to redeem us, to restore us, and to make all things right. 
And so there's great diversity in Scripture. Again, 66 in the books, 66 books written over the course of 1,500 years. Different authors, different places, different experiences, different backgrounds, different genres. Great diversity, but unity with one common story. So the question then often comes is, well, how did the books of the Bible come about? Did one person make a decision? Was there some type of group in a back room, you know, back room deal? It's almost like, like, it's like, are we talking about like Hamilton here? We want to be where the action is, right? No, we're not. How did this come about? How did the Bible come about? Well, by the time of Jesus, the Old Testament scriptures were agreed upon. And over the course of, of the centuries around the Old Testament scriptures, those are even Jesus himself. He spoke of the, of, the, of the law and the prophets and the Psalms and his teaching. So later, in terms of grouping it together, it was the, the law, the prophets, and the writings became the Old Testament scriptures. And so that was known at Jesus' time. But what about the New Testament writings? How did these writings come to be? How did they come about? Well, as we think about the New Testament, um, it's fascinating that the lists of the New Testament books, um, that er as early as 170 AD, the final list, by and large, of the New Testament books was agreed upon. And as you look at different places where these lists came up, and we're not talking one place. We're not talking just in Jerusalem. We're talking northern Africa. We're talking in, also in Jerusalem in the Near East. We're talking about the Mediterranean region. That the list, uh, the list of the New Testament, really the final version of it, truly came around 170 AD. And yes, later was, was, was backed and agreed upon at different councils. But this idea that there was a group of people who in a, in a back room said, here, here are the books of the Bible that, that came together is, 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 is not necessarily true. Because what it came about was a sense that there were these writings and they were like the Old Testament. They had the same impact as the Old Testament. And they became also known as Scripture in the New Testament. So what are the characteristics of these New Testament letters? How did these come about? How did that list that was almost fully formed basically by 170 AD come into being? Well, the InterVarsity Press has a wonderful introduction to the Bible. It's been super helpful to me, a great, a great book. And there's four characteristics that they describe in terms of the New Testament letters. Um, you see them up on the screen. The first one is apostolic origin. That's a fancy way of saying that every book in the New Testament can be connected to one of the apostles or one of the disciples of Jesus. An apostle, a sent one, right? And so therefore, every book of the Bible, whether written directly or connected to a community of one of the original apostles, an apostle who saw the resurrected Jesus, who was taught by the resurrected Jesus. So there was a dead Jewish carpenter who came back to life, kind of a big deal, kind of changed the whole world. And these guys saw him, knew him, were taught by him, and therefore connected to one of those apostles. Every book of the New Testament is connected to one of them. So even Mark, who wasn't an apostle, but Mark, who was close with Peter, or Luke, who traveled with Paul, wasn't an apostle, but it was connected to it. Every book of the New Testament was connected to one of the apostles who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, whether in person or in a vision. Second characteristic is theological consistency. As these lists started to come together, saying, well, okay, these, these books of the New Testament, the 27 books, there was theological consistency. So though, yeah, we could learn from different perspectives. If one, a book had, was way out there, it was like, okay, it claims to be connected to an apostle, but it just doesn't connect with the rest of the books. It didn't make that list. The third one, which has been super helpful to me and very affirming of my faith and confirming, is recognition by different faith, Christian faith communities. What I mean by that is it's fascinating. The different lists of the New Testament books, as they, they were similar in different parts of the world at that time. 
And so whether it was in northern Africa, right, in Alexandria and Egypt, or in Jerusalem itself, or the Near East, or if you were think about, or all around the Mediterranean region, different faith communities all came to the same conclusion about the different books. And so it wasn't just one person or one group of people or even one ethnicity that made the decision about what's in the New Testament. Different parts of what is, for them, was considered the entire world agreed upon what those books were. And this is before the internet. This is before social media, before the cloud. No one uploaded the 27 books in the New Testament and said, does everyone agree to this? Can we click on? No, that obviously wasn't in play. It came about. Lastly, it was transforming power. Fascinating how for those who engaged these different writings, there was something that happened. Those, yes, it, it was subjective in nature, but it came by faith. But when they read the Gospel of John or they read Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it was transforming power because ultimately they came into contact with the living Lord Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, the truths about him, and the call to actions and the exhortations that come of a life that's transformed by the Messiah. There was transforming power in those books. So the 27 books of the New Testament came together based on those four characteristics. As we think about that, and therefore, what's the, what's the purpose of these books? That continues in verse 16, where the Apostle Paul says, it's the, the Word of God is, yes, it's God-breathed, and it's useful or profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. These four actions, and you come into contact with God's Word, breathed out by him and with the stamp of the Holy Spirit that as you engage it and make yourself available, God's word can teach you, teach you about himself, teach you about the ways of life according to him, can rebuke you. Typically that word speaks to more of your thoughts. If you have thoughts that are not a God or not aligned with his truths, it could re- there's a rebuking that occurs. Then there's correcting, which focuses more on behavior and correct and, and help you in terms of your attitudes and actions. And then lastly, train you, which is more long-term to set you on a course to follow God, to train you in righteousness. That's the purpose of Scripture as seen in verse 16. What's the outcome? Well, verse 17 says, so that the servant of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped, meaning that they were able to meet all the demands that are needed, that nothing is missing. And what I love about it is that, that as you encounter the Word of God and you encounter Scripture, this is not just an intellectual exercise. This is not just a lecture this is not just thoughts. It propels you to action. It's that, the, that the servant of God would, would be equipped for every good work. So the expectation is that we take what we know and put it into practice. And we do the good works that God's prepared in advance for us to do. We go out and do it. We're propelled to action. You know, a summary of this that's uh, been helpful to me is that the Bible is the complete and unified witness to God's redemptive acts culminating in the incarnation of the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, so as you think about God's word is essential. Remember, ultimately, the word of God is Jesus Christ who came to be with us. And the written word, the Bible, bears witness to him and to his redemptive acts. So what do we do about this? I know that there's, you have, the essence, you have the Bible and God's word. We have a choice of what to do with it. And even the disciples themselves came across some hard teaching at one point, and and I'm going to conclude with this as we think about not only our lives. In John chapter 6, uh, Jesus taught some hard things. And a lot of the followers were wondering, should they continue to stay with him? And we read this in verse 66. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. 
You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I love this account. Here's all these followers of Jesus. And Jesus starts teaching some hard things. And some people say, like, okay, I'm out. I, I, this is too much. And they leave Jesus. And Jesus, in a very human moment, I mean, Jesus, fully God, fully human, you see his humanity. You do not want to leave too, do you? Kind of hangs out there. Even the 12 could have said, we're done. Like, this guy's too much. And then Simon Peter, right, always the first to speak, but while he spoke well here, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you have the words of eternal life. And Jesus would have just said a couple verses earlier in verse 63, Jesus said, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. Let's see that up on the screen, there we go. The spirit gives life, Jesus said, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. See, this is, when, this is what Peter was getting at. He's like, you have the words of eternal life. There's something different about you. It just varied the nature of what Jesus said. Imagine being there walking with him in that time. What it must have been like to hear him teach and, and just what that would have been like. Here, Peter says, no, you alone, you have the words of eternal life. The full of everything that's needed. So God's word is essential. God's word's essential. And he's given us his word. And his word uniquely gives us life. Um, I know for me, as I've wrestled over the years in terms of faith, and every time that, any time I've thought about, okay, is this really true? Or what's going on? Or I've wanted to, to push God away or not sure. It's something in my life. I, I've come back to John chapter 6. And like Simon... Peter, it's like Peter said, I'm like, Jesus, you alone, you have the words of eternal life. I know for me, as I've gone through the pages of Scripture, um, coming in faith and trust that God mysteriously somehow meets me through the reading of God's Word, that in these pages is forgiveness. In these pages is life. In these pages is help and wisdom, and hope. Um, and so my invitation to you today is either consider for the first time or consider again that God's given you his word. And this word uniquely gives you life. Gives you life. Um, so as we finish, that's the one thing to remember I want you to walk away with, and then I'll give you one thing to do. One thing to remember again is this. God has given us his word. And his word uniquely gives us life. Um, so what do we do with that? One thing to do is this. Approach the Bible this week as a life-giving source. Approach it that way. Now some of you, the Bible may not be, have not been a life-giving source for you for whatever reason. It's boring. Someone forced on you. Or maybe someone has judged you or put you through shame because of the Bible. My prayer for you is that this week come with an open heart and an openness to the fact that God's word is life-giving and that there be healing for you in that. But for all of us, that we would this week approach the Bible as a life-giving source. And then read some passages, um, maybe from the Gospels, maybe from one of the, the shorter letters like, um, like Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians. Read a passage 
And in that, put 2 Timothy 3.16 to work. Say And ask God, God, how are you teaching me? How are you rebuking me? How are you correcting me? How are you training me through this passage? And give it a shot. Experiment and say, God, I want to try or try again to have your word bring me life and put me on a course of life that you have for me. Um, there are some questions for reflection, but instead of sharing them in the sermon, they'll be sent out um, an email tomorrow or Tuesday. I invite you to go deeper in the content um, through, through those, and those questions will also be posted on Facebook. But for all of us, may we all know that God has given us his word, and his word uniquely gives us life. Let me pray for us. Let me pray. Father in heaven, as we consider this truth, uh, I ask God that you would give us uh, the grace to consider your word either for the first time, to consider it again, if we've, been in, if we've been studying and reading it and finding life, that we would continue in that path. Like Timothy, Lord, hearing those words, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. Lord, that, may that be the case. And may that be a marker of our church. God, that your word is essential and that your word is unique and in your word is life. You alone, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. And so may that be the case. I pray for each person who's heard this message, God, that you would... Invite them to a deeper space with you, a deeper relationship with you. And the places, Lord, where they need uh, parts of them that have, may feel like have died, Lord, you would bring them back to life, that there would be a resurrection in their life, Lord. The parts where they feel withered, that there would be restoration, Lord, and renewal. And that your word would be at the forefront of that. Give us that gift. We look to you in faith. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>